morning. So this morning, um, the topic that I'd like to share with you all is a topic of central theological importance. It's the topic of the incarnation. And incarnation comes from um, old Latin words meaning in flesh. Um, and the incarnation is the doctrine of the coming of God into humanity, taking um, human nature, not just the body, but full human nature uh, upon himself and doing the work that we read about in the New Testament. So this morning, I'd like to talk about something in that area, and I'd like to do it in a little bit of a different way. Um, I've got the screen up here this morning. I'm going to start off with two uh, videos. I've never done this. I've done it at a conference and at a camp before, and the reason I'm going to show you these is because I can't actually, I don't think I can put into words what's on the videos. They're about, actually about space. Uh, and the purpose of the videos is to challenge your thinking. I'm going to sort of set this up for you. Challenge your thinking about the greatness of God. And all of you, if I was to ask you about whether how you understood God, you would say God was great, God was powerful. But I think our words completely fail to capture the awesomeness and the greatness of God. Even these words are too small to describe the God who is there. Um, the, 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 the old Christians, medieval Christians, used to speak about the two books of God. One book was Revelation, special revelation, the, the, the revealed word of God. The other book was Nature. And they got that from passages like Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? So you could read about God, you could look at God through nature, and you could look at God through the, the word. And so I'm going to uh, have two videos played. And what I want you to do is I want you to sort of be um, impacted by the vastness of the universe. And then we're going to go from the videos and we're going to look at things we wouldn't know about a God like this if it weren't for the incarnation. And in a holy way, and in a reverential way, should I, can I say this? The oddness, the uniqueness, the unexpectedness that the God of deep space and the God of time or the God outside of time would take a body and come do the things that God did. Right? Why would we ever expect that to happen? Don't, you're so used to it maybe if you've grown up in a sort of a Christian context. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll watch these and then we'll get started. Father, this morning... We want to commit our time to you, and we, we ask as a group of believers, Lord, that um, with this little chunk of time this morning, that you would feed us by your word, that you would help us to enjoy the person and work of Christ, and that in seeing Christ, we would see thee. Father, we ask that you would even shake us a little bit. We live in a world of a thousand voices uh, clamoring for our ears. We live in a world of high media impact and everything is overdone and overstated and over-emotional and it drowns out the reality of you, the God who is there. And so we ask that you would awaken us if we're sleeping to how much bigger you are and how different and how wonderful you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 
treatment. Uh, we'll have to maybe play with Okay. Now maybe you're an uh, amateur astronomer and you look at these videos all the time and this is normal for you, but um, over the last couple of years I've really been thinking more about God in this way. And the purpose of the message this morning is to take um, this kind of an, a concept of God, a God with power to create a universe like this, and that's just a sliver. And then to think that God knows the things of this universe, that God uh, has control over this universe um, in a way that is it's just beyond us. So you might hear me grasp for words during this message, and I might say things like, um, there are things that are odd or things that are unexpected, and I mean them in the most reverential way. Uh, I think that if the universe is this grand and this big and this enormous, uh, you see how words like grand and big and enormous just feel cheap when you realize the immensity. Um, it, it makes sense that there are things about God that we don't understand and things that are beyond us. If it weren't that way, this would sort of be odd, that you could somehow understand everything there was to know about a God who created a universe like this, that this doesn't seem fitting. Uh, but here's the main question I'd like to ask. How would you know, how would you access, how would you, even in a limited way, understand a God like this without God doing some very unique things. There are things about God that you would never know if it weren't for God's special revelation um, of himself. There are things about us as individuals that we could ask. Why has God created us to enjoy color and light and sound and taste? Why did God make us that way? Is your, your idea of God perhaps not deep enough and rich enough? Do you think about the, the joy that the, that the God of the universe enjoys in his deep triune life? That you think that you have emotions of joy or of um, um, righteousness, I think our emotions pale in comparison to the life that is within God. And we're, we're but a small reflection of, of that. Um, how can we know this God? If you think about the universe and you think about what we know about God, we read in John chapter 4 when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, he says to her that God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in what? Spirit and in truth. Well, what does that mean, spirit? Well, spirit is usually set over against the idea of embodiment or physicality. So that God of the universe is not physically embodied like you and I are. The God of the universe is, is spirit. Right? You can't sort of point at the top of God and point at the bottom of God and say God takes up only so much space. Right? Having a body also sort of limits you to a certain physical real estate on the planet. When one isn't embodied, I don't know if they're actually limited in space and in time. Um, 
And what would it, how would you access this God if you were to take away the stars and take away the galaxies and take away the space and there's just sort of darkness and if you could take away the darkness and, and God is there? How would you access that God and know about that God if God didn't reveal himself to you? And my suggestion to you is that when you think of the incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ, that that God takes on human nature and walks among us, it becomes a profoundly, I almost want to say, disturbing in a holy, righteous way. Does that make sense? Or, or I, maybe, maybe you don't like me saying that. I think there's, a, there's something about holiness and God's greatness that should shake us and disturb us a little bit. Right? That that God would take a body and would come and walk and be handled and would speak to us. The God behind the universe is very different from us. Right? How would we know about that God? Um, what I'd like to do is just suggest a few things to you. I mean, perhaps a God like this could create something. You know, so hypothetically, if you're there and how do I know this? Perhaps a God could create something. Oh, okay, so someone is out there. Right? Something was created. I, oh, there's someone out there. Imagine yourself sort of in the dark and, and God is there. Um, we see this in Romans chapter 1 and in Revelation chapter 4. Right? We know from Romans 1 that we can know things about God, his power and his eternality by what he's created. So you would know some things about God that way. Well, God is there. God is out there. God is powerful. Wow. The Revelation chapter 4 and 5 are unique. There are songs that are sung in chapter 4 and songs that are sung in chapter 5. What do they sing about in Revelation chapter 4? Turn with me quickly to Revelation chapter 4. During the Lord's Supper, people often like to turn to Revelation 4 and 5. In Revelation 5, there's a new song. The new song has to do with redemption. But in Revelation 4, there is a song. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm, you could say it's a, at least a statement or a praise. Uh, look at verse number 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings that are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. These videos give a little bit more you know, depth to that phrase, the Almighty. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, now look what they, look what they praise him for. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. So you would know some things about God if God merely created. But there's a lot you wouldn't know, right? Would you know about the kindness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God? There's so much you wouldn't know about God. You'd be blown away by his power. Maybe you would be afraid of God. 
But besides creating, God could perhaps speak, right? God could speak, and we read that in Revelation, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, and then stop at verse 1, right? God could speak. He could reveal something to us about himself. But I think there would still be a limitation to our knowledge of who God was and how God was. Perhaps God could appear randomly at different times and places. We see that, right? Christophanies in the Old Testament. Scenes where it seems that God comes, uh, the per- second person of Trinity, perhaps. Right? We see, see that in the life of Abraham or um, uh, Samson's parents. But then we read here in verse number two, while God spoke in many times and in many fashions in the past by the fathers, to, to the fathers by the prophets, in these last days he's spoken unto us in what? In a son. And this speaking is beyond all other expressions of God. And think about this, that the, the God who is there, the God who you wouldn't have access to, the God who is beyond your knowledge, that God came and took a body and walked among us and did things. It makes sense that you would say, how can we know about God? I mean, what would it be like if God would sort of walk among us and talk and, and live with us? That would help us to understand how God was. I don't think that God did that in, eternity, in, in, in history. Turn with me to John chapter 1. I'm just going to put a few verses together and then get into the sort of the core of the message this morning. And I hope that what I give you gives you something to worship with. A lot of times speakers come, I have to be careful what I say here. Sometimes I get the sense that a lot of speakers are very frequently telling the body how it's failures, right? Uh, failures and correction, but there, there, there's, there's much in Scripture to enjoy about God and to be enraptured in, and to be driven to worship. Um, and, and this is one of those things. Why would the God of the universe come and take a body? Well, of course, to die on the cross, but there's more than that. Um, John chapter 1, verse 18, we read this simple phrase. I'm going to read verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And then we have this phrase, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. I'm reading from the NASB this morning. You, get, you see the idea? I probably said it three or four times. You're like, all right, we get it. Go on. Right? But that the God, how would you access that? No one has seen God at any time. How do you know about the God who is there? Christ comes and, and in a unique way explains him and begins to reveal him. One of the, the titles or one of the, the descriptions of Christ in the New Testament is that he is the express image of God. How do you see an invisible God? That's kind of what I've been answering. An invisible God could, could create, could speak but ultimately to come and to be an image of God on earth. John chapter 14, John chapter 14, verse 6. 
Jesus is preparing the disciples for his going away. He's going to go to the cross and die. This is the night of his betrayal, the night of the Last Supper. There's a lot of teaching in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. It's titled The Upper Room Ministry. And here um, he's telling them he's going to go away. In verse 5, Thomas says to him, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. How, how, how do you get to this God? How do you access this God? Christ says, I am the way. I mean, what a, profoundly, a profound depth to me. At least these are my feelings. When I know about the universe and I know the greatness of God and I hear Jesus say, nobody's going to get to the Father on their own steam. Morally, you're not. You don't have the power to. You don't even know where God is. You have no access to God. And God comes to us, and Jesus says, I'm the way to the Father. There's a depth to that statement that I, that I see. Um, yes, he's the way to the Father morally and, 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 and in terms of salvation, but just, just bluntly, how would you ever access God? If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him, and you've seen him. And Philip, like the rest of us, says to him, Lord, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> what do you mean? Lord, show us the father. And it's enough for us. That would be a good Jewish um, maybe approach, right? right? To, to, to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and, and, and mind and, and show us the father. That would be sufficient. That would be an excellent day. And then Jesus says this, have I been so long with you? And you, you don't get it, Philip? You haven't come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? How do you see the invisible God? How do you begin to know God like this? And for that God to come and take flesh, a body, and walk, and love, and act. That's the simple heart of this message. I'll just say it now. And I'm going to give you some examples from the New Testament. What does it mean to you if you stop and pause before the greatness of God? And then you see that God come and stop and talk to a woman at a well and say, can I have something to drink? It's, it's so far beyond simply the fact that he was breaking social barriers, right? Why are you a Jew speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? That he would say, suffer the little children to come unto me. There would just be so many things about God you would never know. Let me give you some examples Let me give you some examples. Um, and I'll share some more with you tonight, perhaps. Turn with me to um, Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. 
And look at verse... Number 28. Think of what you've seen and look at verse 28. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, what I'm going to say is based on the biblical statement that Jesus is the express image of the Father, that in seeing Christ, we see God. If I understand that right, and I'm open to correction, how would I ever know that the God of deep space, the creator of quantum mechanics, the God who engineers the human mind and who can move the stars of the deep space field like you move your fingers, how would you know that that God would ever say something like, I'm meek? and humble in heart? How would you know that? And you might say, well, I don't know that God's like that. I mean, a God that great and powerful couldn't be like that. Well, if that's true, then Jesus doesn't image the Father expressly. If he's not imaging the Father here, then the things he's saying about himself don't picture the God who is there. You could perhaps draw a line between Christ's messianic work as a human and God as God is in his eternal divine self and we could discuss that. But the point I'm making assumes that, that in all that Christ does, he images the Father. How would you know that about God? See, you have no control over the God who is behind space and time, right? That God comes at us and could come at us. You have, you, you have no say in the way God is. And, and how encouraging is it to hear that the God who comes at us out of space is good and is righteous and would, would say something like, I am meek and lowly at heart. That God took a body and walked on earth. I mean, you might say, well, I don't understand. What's the purpose of all the planets and the purpose of all of this? I don't know. What's the point? There might be 45,000 points, and we know three of them. But one of them might be this. Here's our little earth in what they call the Goldilocks zone of one of the spiral arms of the galaxy, a place that's just right, tuned for inhabitable life. It just seems so insignificant in the vastness of the universe. Maybe one of the purposes of the greatness of the universe is that we could see the, the fact that a God that created with that power comes and takes a body. What kind of a stoop is that? And what does that tell you about God? I asked, is science important for worship? I, I feel this in a certain way that God would do that. That God is gentle. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Let me ask you another question. I'm just going to preface these statements this morning by asking you, how would you know? Romans chapter 8, what's your destiny? What does God say you're predestined to? If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you've been predestined perhaps to many things, but one of the things you've been predestined to is to be conformed to the image of his dear son. 
here's a question. How would you ever be conformed to the image of that God? I mean, I'm pointing, if somebody listens to this on an MP3 on a website, it might sound odd because I keep pointing at the screen where the video is showing. So if you hear this, you're thinking, I don't get it. He's asking all these questions and then leaving them. Um, I'm gesturing at the screen if you're listening uh, to this later, <laughs> right? So I'm, I'm imagining us looking at the Andromeda galaxy and the stars and, and the God who's invisible and dwells in approachable light. How would we ever image that God? How would we ever be conformed to his image, right? God created humanity, Genesis 126, in his image. The human race fell. The Bible seems to indicate that the image of God wasn't fully lost because in, in Genesis chapter 9, we're not to kill because humans are still created in the image of God. And in James chapter 5, with our tongue, we bless God. And with our tongue, we curse man who is created what? In the image of God. I mean, that, that doesn't seem like it would make that much of a point if we had lost the image of God. Right? What's the point of warning us about cursing others if we aren't bearing the image of God anymore? It loses its point. The point only stands if we still bear the image of God. We're created in the image of God, but then we read in the New Testament that we're being progressively conformed to the image of God. Right? So some of the old writers like to talk about maybe how the image of God was sort of tarnished in some way. John Calvin liked to talk about that, that when people sinned, they sort of did damage to their image and sort of degraded it. Um, and, and sort of like he says, you've got to think of their old technology. When there's a painting and it gets old, you call the painter back and you sort of have the person sit for the painting again and you touch it up. Talked about the image of God being tuned up and being um, refreshed. Romans chapter 8, we're, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Reading at verse number 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. How? Why? I don't, well, how do all things work together for good? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed or become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Right? What was God's intention for the human earth, the, the, the human race? That earth would be populated by a race of people that bore God's image, that loved what God loved, cared about what God cared about, that when you looked upon earth and saw these people moved, you would be reminded of God. God doesn't have plan B. That's what's going to happen, right? Those that, that trust in Christ will be conformed back to his image. How would you be conformed to the image of this sort of God? And then you think of the incarnation and the coming of God in flesh. And he says, watch me, follow me, learn from me. Okay, I, yeah, I, I, I can follow Jesus. Yeah, I, can, I get that. And suddenly it's brilliant, right? The whole narrative. Why did God give us the Gospels in a story, right? Why not just a bunch of propositions? I hang around with philosophers. They would love that. And they get accused of treating the Bible like a book of propositional statements that they didn't put in syllogisms. And all the biblical scholars don't like the philosophers for treating it. You're ignoring genre. You're ignoring the way the Bible's treated, right? God gave us stories in the Gospels. Why? So we can watch the life of Jesus as he moves and walks. It's far more helpful to us than just a line that says, Jesus is holy, right? To watch him stoop and watch him care and watch him visit Zacchaeus and the woman at the well. 
how would we image that God? How would we know God was gentle? Here's another question. How would you know that God was willing to suffer for you? I'm open to being corrected here because this runs up against the doctrine of what's called the impassibility of God. It's an old doctrine that God doesn't experience emotions like we do. But when I read the scriptures and when I look at the life of Christ, I'm touched by the fact that God was willing to suffer for me. That God. Do you see the, the contrast? That's the whole point. The contrast between the power of God is greatness and that that God was willing to suffer for me. How would, I, how would you know that if it weren't for the incarnation? What's behind this message is one of the statements that Paul makes where he talks about Christ as the wisdom of God and the power of God. But that the world around Paul, when he talked about the cross, they thought it was utterly stupid. And I'm saying stupid so that you get the way people looked at the cross in the Hellenistic world. There's a reason Paul said that the cross was foolishness. Come with me to the world of the first century. What was a cross for? We often emphasize the pain of the cross. But one of the things that we should emphasize is the cross was designed to humiliate people. The cross was designed to shame people. It was one thing if you died a noble death in battle. You could lead your troops or lead your rebellion group against the empire and die in battle and, and have a hero's death. But not if Rome caught you and humiliated you and denied you a death of fame, but instead strung you up naked on a cross at an intersection and let you die slowly. Romans didn't want to have Roman citizens die on a cross. It was beneath people. So in the first century world that you would ever preach that your Messiah, your Savior, got nailed to a cross? Are you kidding me? That was a shame. It was an embarrassment. It didn't make any sense. Why would you ever preach that message? The cross is foolishness, Paul writes, to the unbelieving world. Not because he's searching for rhetorical words, but because it was. People couldn't believe it if it wasn't for the grace of God. But, Paul says we have to preach Christ. We can't get sidetracked using certain stylistic, rhetorical, impressive techniques to communicate God. Because it'll empty the gospel of its meaning. It'll make the cross powerless. Because then we're bringing people to God by something that impresses them. And they will sort of, well, don't worry about the cross. It's kind of embarrassing. Like, right? That's not what people would do in human ingenuity. If they were trying to draw a first century crowd to Jesus, they wouldn't preach the cross. But Paul says, if you don't preach the cross, you empty the gospel of its amazing, mind-bending power. That the God of deep space and time would come and take a body and get nailed to a cross? How would you know that God was that way if it weren't for the cross? You just wouldn't know. There's so much you wouldn't know about God if you did things the way that made sense to people. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The foolishness of God, what looks crazy to people... Is far more intelligent than anything we could conjure up. The wisdom of God far outstrips what we would think about. 
How would you know? I think it's time to close, right? So what I want to do tonight is I want to continue with a number of questions, things that we probably wouldn't know about God. if it weren't for the way that God did things that were different than the way that we do things. And I want to challenge you. When you think about the God who is there, do you have a simplistic idea of God? Do you think of God as uh, an old man? I don't know what you think of when you think of God. Right? God's not white. He's not black. He's not Asian. Right? God... Think about the God who created space. God is spirit. What kind of an idea of God do you have? And doesn't need to be tuned up by the word of God and by the creation that God's made. That's important. Let's bow in prayer. And we'll take this up again tonight. Father, we ask that you would um, help us to be rightly amazed at who you are. When we learn a little more about you, it makes sense when we hear the angels cry, holy, 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 holy. This God is so different, so righteous. Lord, we're little people spinning on the side of a little planet out in the backwaters of a little galaxy. We thank you for your words to us. Thank you for coming to us creating us, loving us, and telling us that you're going to bring us back to where you are. Lord, this just blows our minds. And we don't deserve any of it. Lord, we thank you for who you are and for your kindness to us. Lord, help us to introduce others to your goodness, your greatness, your kindness your beauty, your awesomeness. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.